a cuppa and a good chinwag? The story has real-life stories to inspire and make you smile. Weekdays on Vision and on demand in the app. This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media. Thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation today at vision.org.au. Today with Jeff Vines, author, pastor, apologist and Bible teacher with a straight-talking message from the Word. Most of our psychological, emotional problems can be traced back to undealt with shame or guilt. Today with Jeff Vines. Hello and welcome. Thanks for joining me again on Today with Jeff Vines. In this message, Pastor Jeff uses the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well to highlight the shame we can feel from being separated from God. You can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. Let's get into the message now on Today with Jeff Vines. Turn over to John chapter 4, John chapter 4, and, uh, and I want to take you to another little girl who's all grown up now. She's a woman, and she lives in Samaria, and I want you to hear her story. I'm going to tell it to you. It's in John 4. You can read it later, but I'll tell you the story. In this series called Face to Face, I'm asking you what God would say to you if he could sit across the table from you and have a one-on-one face-to-face, what would he say to you at this juncture of your life? And I'm saying to you that in John 4, there's something powerful that we're going to go to another layer, pass owner and tenant into something that's going to be hard for every one of us to digest. Some of us are going to think it's not applicable to us. And then right in the middle of the message, it's going to hit us. This is us. She lives in Samaria. Jesus and the disciples have been doing some great ministry over in Judea, and they're going to make their way back to Galilee. But Jesus does what most rabbis would never even think about doing. Rather than avoiding Samaria, he goes right smack dab in the middle of it. And he finds himself at a plot of land that Jacob gave his son, Joseph, coat of many colors. So the land and the well. Jesus knows he's there for a reason. There's a divine appointment. He's obviously heard from his father. But there's a Samaritan woman, the Bible says, that comes out to draw water at about midday. Now that tells us something about her already. You don't come by yourself as a woman in Samaria to draw water around noon unless you're an outcast, unless you've been disassociated, unless you've been ostracized. You come early in the morning or late in the evening with the rest of the women. But if you don't want to meet any of the rest of the women by happenstance, And if you've been ridiculed and shamed, you'll try to sneak out to the well when nobody else is there. Also around noontime is when the elders at the city gate, they'd not be seated there either. You know the elders, right? They sit around and judge everybody. Self-righteous. You don't know anybody like that, right? She walks by at noon, hopefully avoiding the city elders and hopefully avoiding any happenstance with anybody else. Can you imagine what she felt like when she thinks, great, there's a guy at the well. But then she sees him. Wait a minute. He's Jewish and he's male, which means he's not going to have anything to do with me. So I'm safe. I'll just get my water and go back home. But then can you imagine her astonishment when he actually speaks to her? It must've taked her off. Woman, he says, can I have a drink? 
And she says, and I think she's mad, uh, don't you understand how this works? You're Jewish and you're male and I am a Samaritan and a woman. Two strikes against me. Why are you talking to me? And Jesus looked at her and said, if you knew who it was asking you for a drink, you'd be asking me for water and I'd give you living water. She's Samaritan. She has a good understanding of the first five books of the Bible. She understands what living water means. It's Old Testament symbolism for internal transformation to be all clean and pure inside, to know what it is to experience complete emotional and psychological health and vitality, the thing she wants more than anything else. But she's not sure Jesus is using the same language. So she says, sir, how is it that you're going to give me this living water when you don't have anything to draw water with and the well is deep? And he says, Look, you can try to change the topic as much as you want. Now, that's a loose translation of the Greek. I'll, tell you, I'll give you that. He says, you can talk about living water all you want. And you can keep drinking water from this well. But I'm telling you, as long as you take water, you're going to keep getting thirsty. But if you'll take the water I give you, you'll never thirst again. Now, I'm not sure, just being honest, I don't know what happens here, quite frankly, because I know from other things she says that she's got a great knowledge of the Old Testament and what Jesus is saying about living water. Maybe she got caught up in a moment thinking that Jesus couldn't really provide it. He was only talking about it because then she pretended like the living water was actually water that would never end. So she says, give me that living water because she's thinking if I have the water and I'll never thirst again, I never have to leave my home again. I never have to go by the ridicule of the city elders at the gate. I never have to, by happenstance, meet anybody, talk to anybody, and I can stay home without the shame. Give me the water. Jesus goes right after the jugular. He says, fine, okay, go get your husband. I don't have a husband. You're right, you don't. You've had five, and the one you're with now is not your husband. Now, this woman is clever. Matter of fact, most of the women in the Bible are incredibly intelligent. My wife told me to say that, it's done. <laughs> she changes the conversation from her and turns it in to a theological argument. This is brilliant with a rabbi. If you ever want to distract me when I'm talking to you about something in your life, just ask me a theological question. She says, you Jews worship in the temple, the tabernacle, but we Samaritans worship on the mountain. That's after Jacob, who they believe to be their father. Which one is it? And Jesus said, don't try to change this topic. Now, he didn't really say that, but he says, lady, the time is coming when forget about the mountain and forget about the building, the people will worship in spirit and truth. They will be so clean and so healthy, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually clean because they'll know that God is spirit and wherever they go is where they worship him. You don't have to come to a building. That they take God with them wherever they go. And in truth, they'll know it's not all about religious rituals of some kind to earn approval with God. It's about grace and mercy and forgiveness. And one day people are gonna learn that. Now, what she does from there is astounding, but I'm going to save it. Now, you can read ahead if you want, but you'll miss what I'm going to say next. What she does then is astounding. But just for the moment, I want you to know that what she's dealing with in John 4 represents every one of you in this room. And if, unless you're willing to deal with this and humble yourself and don't get so defensive... You're never going to receive the healing and the living water and it's, life is never going to be overflowing within you like God wants it to overflow. Because if God could sit across the table from every single one of you in the room, I believe the next question he would ask you is this. He would say, Jeff, now you put your name where Jeff is, right? 
how are you dealing with your shame? When shame and guilt come, how do you respond? Now, folks, I'm not talking about mere embarrassment. We've all been embarrassed, right? I got my stories. How much time do you have? You've all got stories of embarrassment. Remember I told you about the time that my eyes were on the creation rather than the creator, and this beautiful girl distracted me, and I was in high school, and I had a big load of popcorn and Coke, and there was a big athletic competition basketball game going on, but I was distracted. The time I realized where I was, I was about midcourt, and there was an official in a striped shirt running down to get ahead of the play. Last thing I saw was those stripes. We collided. There was a cloud of popcorn, a cloud of Coke, and 5,000 screaming fans on their feet, pointing their fingers at me and laughing. That's embarrassment. <laughs> now, you'll get over that. It may take a while, and you'll gain a nickname that you'll never live down, of which I'll never tell you. But <laughs> that's just embarrassment. The only thing bruised is your ego. What I'm talking about is shame. That's the next layer. And Jesus will ask every single one of you, how are you dealing with it? Shame is not like embarrassment, folks, because shame is debilitating. It's like quicksand. Once you get in it, every bit of energy you have is just trying to stay alive. There's no forward progress. Shame is the most debilitating thing. But here's the reality. That's only one kind of shame, and most of you are familiar with it. There's another kind that you probably never thought of that's just as debilitating. And both are exemplified by this woman in John 4. And before you walk out of here, I'm begging you to ask where you are and how you're dealing with both types. Now, here's the first type. Imagine for a moment, imagine that your parents had a cruel sense of humor and they kept you in the house until you were 15 years old. Homeschooled you the whole bit and you never got to leave. And they played a little trick on you. Every time you looked in the mirror, you looked like, because they were using this program, Jabba the Hutt. Okay, that's you. Now you think, what's the big idea? All right, you're, you're, so, you're, so you're three feet tall, four inches, four, four feet wide. That's your perspective of yourself. And that's important because that means you're going to start making life-forming decisions based on a false perception of who you are. You're going to decide who you're going to marry or if you're going to marry, what kind of role you're going to play, what kind of job you're going to take. And all these decisions are going to be based on something that is farcical, a false understanding of reality, that you are subject to the mirrors of your life to a great degree to give you feedback on who you are. But what if the mirrors all of your young life were wrong? And you made decisions for your life, adult life, based on these false perceptions. When you come to the well and you meet the woman, you have to ask, what false perceptions of reality did she have? What kind of mirrors reflected an image back to her that were false all of her life? And what decisions has she now made reflecting those false perceptions? Because the reality is, I don't have to meander too far away to understand what's going on here because pastors see it a thousand times over and over. For her to get to the place she is, the chances are high, very high, that what she wanted more than anything else was just approval by dad or by her mom. Just to have their head turn and light up when she walks into a room. Just to have approval. 
Just to have a parent say, you can make it. You got what it takes. You are lovable. You are worthy. And you can accomplish great things. That's all she wanted, but she never got it. So what does she do? She meets a young man by the name of probably Buzz or Rocket Man. (laughs) And he gives her what she's looking for. Love, grace, mercy, acceptance. She feels worthy. His face turns when she walks into the room. His eyes light up. But he's got his own issues. So somewhere along the way, the relationship continues, but then even he starts to control and manipulate her because he knows he can to get what he wants. She doesn't want to give it up, but she does because the biggest fear in her life is rejection again. Reluctantly, she gives it. She's shameful the next day, but she liked the temporary high that she felt in this relational love. Temporary as it was, it was like a high and it creates an addiction. So she moves from one man to another man to another man looking for that emotional, that relational high. So she has one lover after another lover, another husband after another husband. She becomes addicted to it. So she's willing to do whatever it takes to get that relational high that she always wanted from mom and dad and never found. But the problem is instead what she gets is this, both types of shame. The first type of shame, the type where she understands or believes that she's worthless and doesn't deserve to be unconditionally loved and doesn't have what it takes to make it in the world. And every bad thing that happens to her, she thinks she deserves. And the second kind of shame is the life she lives in an attempt to overcome the first, to do things, to give herself to men in ways that she really doesn't want to, but she's addicted to that temporary high of relational love that doesn't last very long and leaves her wanting more after it's all done and feeling even worse. That's why She doesn't want to go past those city gates anymore because every time she does, she's reminded of both types of shame. The city elders sit in judgment. You're worthless. You don't deserve anybody. You're always going to be a loser. And the other kind of shame, she knows that she's not living the way she ought to be living. The elders don't have to tell her that. She knows that. She's reminded of both. That's why she says to Jesus, just in that momentary relapse, give me the living water so I don't have to come back to this well. Folks, please listen. Sometimes shame is the result of flawed mirrors. You've listened to the wrong voices. And there are many women in this room. I'm just going to, there are many women in the room right now who think they're unworthy, who believe they don't have what it takes, who believe they're not pretty, who believe they're resigned to a life below mediocrity because you've looked into the wrong mirrors for most of your life and the perception you have of yourself is false. There was a girl, her name was Lorena and she rode on the bus to and from school when I was in fifth, sixth grade. She sat in a bus seat by herself. Now, you know, that's the age, man, where kids can be so cruel. She was overweight. She was very poor and very shy. And I, I, I remember to and from school, the same old thing every day. Just verbal abuse, making fun of Lorena. It got so bad that she'd go into a shell in her own world and just stare straight and wouldn't even look to the left or the right. And this was about the time, that age, I don't know what it's like now, but then that was about the time that, and you start going steady. You didn't know what that meant, but you did it. And the worst insult a guy could ever receive is for another guy or girl to say to him, 
you're going steady with Lorena, you're going steady with Lorena. And they said it out loud where she could hear and all day long. Now you think about her. She wanted to please her mom and dad. She wanted them to know that she was smart, she was pretty and she had what it takes. But every mirror in her life reflected the exact opposite. Now I use her story because it's unique, this next part. She changed in high school. She just changed. Her whole body changed. Everything changed. Everything just got narrow. <laughs> Lorena became, in, in the eyes of the world now, a beautiful lady. And everybody around her knew it, except her. In her mind, the mirrors of her entire life had told her, She's not worthy. She doesn't have what it takes. She's not attractive. She doesn't deserve anything that's good. She believed it. And that's the life she lived. There is a shame that you can feel that is the result of flawed mirrors. But you better be careful because if you believe them, you'll actually start to conform to them when there's so much more that you could be. But then there's the second kind of shame. And that's the shame that is an accurate mirror of who you are. And I have thought a thousand times, why just one time did I not go over and sit by Lorena, just one time, and look at her and say, it's all lies, Lorena. They're all lying. You're valuable. God loves you. Something grand's gonna happen. There's something beautiful inside you. You've got to find out what it is. It's gonna come out one day. Just one time, the power of one. Could I have totally changed her life? Just one boy telling her that she's valuable. You think I haven't thought about that since sixth, fifth, sixth, and seventh grade? You think I haven't thought about the fact that she might still be alive? If just one time, I would have stood up and said, guys, that's enough. Everybody on the bus, knock it off. Because I could have. Knock it off. Stop. There's a type of shame that is an accurate mirror. You say, Jeff, that's the worst you've done? No, of course not. <coughs> I'm saying to you that you've got to make a decision to deal with both types. Both are equally destructive. Both will destroy you in the end both of them. And where the second kind of shame is concerned, where you're involved in some activity right now that you know is shameful and that that mirror you're looking in is a reflection of what is true. If you try to ignore it and you do so long enough, it will kill you. It will destroy any hope you have of any future relationship, any future progression, and you will live a life of sarcasm and contempt and negativity and no one will want to be around you because you'll know down deep inside who you really are. And if you don't love yourself, nobody else can love you. So you got to deal with it. Simon Weisenthal in the book, Sunflower, talks about the story of how he lost 89 of his family members in the Holocaust, 89. So his children aren't going to have any grandparents, aunts, uncles, and he says, near the end of the war, 
As a Jewish male, he was taken into a German makeshift hospital. True story written in Sunflower. Read the book, great book. And he said, they escorted him into a hospital room where a German soldier was in a bed, all bandaged up, wounded. And his days, matter of fact, hours were numbered. He was dying. But the German soldier demanded to see a Jewish male. Weissenthal said they escorted him in. He didn't know what was happening. Back then, if you got taken anywhere, it could mean death. It could mean the end. He was seated in this chair beside this hospital bed and this German soldier reached over and grabbed him by the arm. And he said, I wanted to see you because the shame and guilt inside is so bad. Death physically I can handle, but I can't handle the shame and the guilt. And he recounted the story of taking an entire village of women and children, Jewish, locking them in the community center and burning it down and listening to their screams as they were dying in agony. And he says, it haunts my dreams. And I just wonder if on behalf of all Jews, you would issue in forgiveness. Would you forgive me for what I did on behalf of all Jewish men and women? And Weissenthal said, no, I can't do it. Psychologists tell us something very interesting. They say so pervasive and deep-seated are the ramifications of shame and guilt that some in professional counseling call guilt the cornerstone of all neurosis. You know what that means? It means that most of our psychological, emotional problems can be traced back to undealt with shame or guilt. This is Today with Jeff Vines, and we've run out of time there. We are only partway through this message from Pastor Jeff. So next time, we'll continue the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well to highlight the shame we can feel from being separated from God. And God says, stop looking at the wrong mirrors and see your life like I see it. There is something special and miraculous inside you. And if you'll draw close, you'll find it. Today with Jeff Vines. For more from Pastor Jeff, head to vision.org.au forward slash Jeff Vines. Today with Jeff Vines. Just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.